Kevin, thank you so very, very much. I do appreciate those kind words. Hello, everybody. Glad to see you today. Good morning. And I am honored and delighted to be here with you. You need to know I am a, I am a fan uh, of Lebanon, Tennessee. As Kevin mentioned, my wife is uh, from here. We were married here in Lebanon, in Lebanon uh, 38 and a half years ago. And um, a lot of family and friends here from over the years. And uh, so I am a fan of your community. I am a fan of this church. I've admired your work, admired your ministry for a long time. You're a healthy place. You've got healthy leaders here. And you're a healthy body of believers. And I commend you and make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace and to keep your great work of faith, hope, and love. Barry, thank you for leading us so well in our singing today. Thank you so much. And let me say to all of you, thank you. Thank you. A little over a year ago in Houston, we were hit by Hurricane Harvey. And it was an incredible episode of 50 inches of rain. Never seen anything uh, like it. Martha and I, we've lived there over 33 years. It was wild. It was it was crazy. And... Um, we established a hurricane help fund from our church, and we received donations from 28 different states, uh, all the way from Hawaii to Rhode Island. But you sent us a very, very generous check. You sent it quickly, promptly, and with great affection. And I want to uh, look you in the eye this morning and again say to you, thank you from the First Colony Church of Christ. Thank you from the greater Houston area for your kindness and assistance to us. All right? Okay. Delighted to be with you as you think about the church leaving the building, as you think about impact here and and beyond. And I uh, start with a little story, a football story, of uh, of, uh, Coach Bear Bryant. Many years ago, it was said that he brought his assistant coaches in one day, and he said, gentlemen, there are many different types of football players. There's one type of player, you you knock him down, he stays down. We don't want that boy here at Alabama. But there's another kind of player, you knock him down, he gets right back up. But you knock him down again, he stays down. We don't want that boy here at Alabama. But there's another kind of kid. You knock him down, he gets right back up. You knock him down again, he gets right back up. You keep knocking him down, he'll keep getting up. And one of the assistant coaches said, Bear, that's the kid you want here at Bama, right? He said, nope, you find that big boy who's knocking everybody down. That's the kid I want you to bring here at Alabama. He said, if we're going to make a difference, we've got to go on the offensive. We've got to be assertive. We've got to have a plan. Let's think and talk today about our influence as people of God. And here's the question I'm asking. How do we live in a culture that does not hold to the values or standards to which we would hold as believers? And how do we have a redemptive influence, a positive influence, in a culture that is opposed, or at least somewhat opposed, to what we believe as followers of Jesus. Let me put a map up here on the screen. Without going into historical details, in the Older Testament, God's people were taken into Babylonian captivity. 
around 600 B.C. Some of God's best and brightest, about 25% of the nation, taken away to Babylon. People like Daniel, the Daniel Lion's Den story. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the prophet Jeremiah. But here's what I want you to see. Here's the point. They're now living in a culture that is not friendly to their faith. Now, back in Jerusalem, when they lived in Jerusalem, in today's terms, they flipped on the TV station. It was all faith-friendly. They're listening to music. It's all faith-friendly. They go to the movies in Jerusalem. It's all faith-friendly. Back in Jerusalem, the Little League didn't schedule games to interfere with church. The entire culture was faith-affirming. But now, all that's changed. And in Babylon, Babylon's culture would have, been the, would have been the exact opposite of Judah's culture. Whereas Judah's culture affirmed faith, Babylonian culture is faith-denying, faith-demeaning, faith-diminishing. In other words, it's not cool to be a person of faith in Babylon. So how should these exiles adapt to their new culture? They could just blend in, go with the flow. They could stand aloof at the edge and just condemn everything. You say, well, Ronnie, we don't live in Babylon. No, but we do live in a culture that's not always friendly to our faith. How shall we respond? I take you to a passage from Jeremiah, chapter 29. This, I believe, becomes the paradigm for the people of God through the ages. Here's what God says. Here's what I want you to do when you're in a culture that's not faith-friendly. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. And give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Don't pray that it fall. Pray that it prospers. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. He says to God's people, look, you're going to be here a while. Actually, you're going to be here for 70 years. He says, you're going to be here a while. Go ahead. Put down roots. I want your posture and your thinking to be, no, we're not going to compromise. We'll always know we are the people of God, but we are going to pray. We are going to be a part of the fabric of this city, and we're going to work for its good. Because if the community prospers, everybody wins. And the language here of Jeremiah He's calling you and me to redemptive and purposeful participation. In other words, we can be a creative minority. Does everybody in Wilson County believe? No. But you can be a part of a creative minority. John Tyson says it like this. Here's his definition. A creative minority is a Christian community of stubbornly 
loyal relationships who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. I like that. I love that. You and me together, stubbornly loyal to one another, and we're working together to practice the way of Jesus in our community. As Christ himself would say, you're going to be the light of the world. You will illuminate a different way and a better way. You're going to be the salt of the earth, bringing about seasoning and flavor and preservation. Now, everybody, very few of us in this room, if any of us, will ever influence culture, capital C, in a major way. But we can all influence cultures, small c. Wherever you have more than one person, you've got a culture. You get married, you've got a culture. You've got a new culture. At times, you have competing cultures. Wherever you are, where there's more than one person, you've got a, you have a culture in your office. You have a culture at your work. You've got a culture in your home. You have a culture in your neighborhood. And you influence. How? I want to give you four specific ways, four specific, tangible, powerful ways that believers influence our cultures. Number one, the power of prayer. The power of prayer. And here's what, gang, listen, I beg you not to dismiss this as a pious platitude. Just hang with me for a moment. In 1 Timothy 2, the Bible says, I urge then, notice, first of all, of paramount importance, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, notice this, for kings and all those in authority. You say, well, Ronnie, I don't traffic in those circles. Yes, you do. You have a friend in high places. In fact, you have a friend in the highest place. And your prayers impact in significant ways. He says, this is good. And it pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. There is no more powerful, no more decisive position you can play in God's work than being a prayer warrior. And anybody can do that from any place. Close by, far away from a hospital bed, from a nursing home, from a prison cell, in a room all by yourself. But everybody, we can pray knowing that God works and fights for us in ways we don't always see and do not always perceive. I remind you that prayer is not something you do to prove what a good person you are. Prayer is God's gift to you whereby you get to partner with him in changing the boundaries of reality. Sometimes somebody will say, well, you know, I prayed about something and I don't see major changes. Let me remind you that just because a situation is not perfect, that doesn't mean it's not better. And just because a situation about which you've prayed is not ideal, that doesn't mean 
that God's anointing, favoring, protecting work is not there. You do know that we don't get perfect in this life. You do know we don't get ideal in this life. It's coming. Christ died for us. Christ is risen. Christ is coming again in glory. But right now, he says, you will have trouble in this world. And so just because a situation is not perfect, that doesn't mean God's not at work there. Just because it's not ideal, that doesn't mean God's not at work. And it doesn't mean that your prayers are not powerful and effective. You pray, would you? And keep praying and influence culture. And prayer is just one more expression of our great God and King. It's just one more picture of the gospel of God doing for us what we cannot possibly do for ourselves. And then here's the second power. It's the power of grace and truth. And this is an incredible catalytic combination right here. Not grace or truth, but the power of grace and truth. You see, listen. Sometimes truth without grace can just be mean. Certainly unhelpful. But grace without truth can be meaningless. It's just a hollow marshmallow. Here's the way the Bible describes Jesus in John chapter 1. For the law was given through Moses, and the law's a good thing. But here's a better thing. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. A masterful combination. Not either or, both and. And to me, one of the classic examples of grace and truth in action is that story of John in John 8 where a woman was brought to Jesus who had been caught in the very act of adultery. You remember this story. And without getting into a discussion of textual criticism, just follow the narrative. A woman was brought to Jesus, caught in the very act. The religious leaders bring her and say, Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. The law of Moses demands a severe punishment. She should be stoned to death. What do you say? And, of course, you read that story, and your first question is, where's Waldo? You know, where's the guy who's involved in this? He's not around, but the woman is brought. Jesus, what should we do? And Jesus is in a dilemma. Will he come across as light on sin, or will he come across as light on grace? And you remember what the Bible says? He knelt, and he writes in the ground. And he says, whoever is without sin, you go ahead and throw the very first stone. And then he does what? He writes in the ground again. What did he write in the ground? I don't know, but I like to think what he's writing, he's writing specific sins. Drawing a circle around and then maybe doing an arrow.
Go ahead, throw the first rock. And as you know, they all shuffle away. And then Jesus says to the woman, Has no one condemned you? Neither do I. But notice, grace and truth, go now and leave your life of sin. That's the power of grace and truth. Listen, without truth, we would be a corrupt people with no standards. Without truth, I would know, we would know what to believe and how to behave. Without the Word of God, we would be without a compass. But without grace, we cannot stand before God. Without grace, we would not receive the righteousness of Christ as a gift. Without grace, we can't draw close and have assurance. Without grace, we'd become judgmental and condescending. Listen, everybody. We can be a people of both grace and truth, holding up God's truth, at the same time eagerly and abundantly proclaiming and practicing grace, both and. And it's incredibly influential. Rosaria Butterfield is a writer, a speaker, and a homemaker. She's a former tenured professor of English at Syracuse University. She received her Ph.D. from Ohio State, but she served in the English Department and Women's Studies Program at Syracuse University from 1992 until 2002. But she's most widely known for her autobiography entitled The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, An English Professor's Journey into the Christian Faith. This is a book in which she tells about her transformation, her conversion from a postmodernist lesbian professor to a Christian, and now the wife of a minister and a mom. She said in 1997, there she is living in Syracuse, and a Promise Keepers conference is coming to town. She thought, I can't stand promise keepers. They're Christians. They're men. And she wrote some scathing articles about the promise keepers. She said she received a, a number of uh, letters in response. Obviously, this is going to be uh, pre-email days. This was in 1997. And uh, so she received a, a, a lot of letters. She put one box over here, one box over here, you know, hate mail, fan mail. But she said she received one letter she didn't know what to do with. She put it on her desk for seven days. It was a letter from a local minister by the name of Ken Smith. Ken and his wife, Floyd. She said, and I quote, It was a kind and inquiring letter. It had warmth and civility to it in addition to asking me a number of probing questions. For example, how did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know you're right? Do, do you believe in God at all? And has faith informed your choices? She said it was the kindest letter of opposition I'd ever received. 
And with that letter, Ken and his wife invited me to dinner, and I accepted just to do a little research. But they entered my world, and they brought their faith to me. We ate together, and Ken would lead prayer before our meals. I'd never heard anybody really pray before, never really heard anybody certainly pray like that. His prayers were personal. He repented of sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. As he told me about his God, his God was holy and firm, and yet also full of mercy. And it was safe to be with Ken and Floyd. They gave me a Bible, and I started reading it. And eventually I started reading it like a glutton goes for food. And one day, one of my friends from my old lifestyle pointed a finger at me and said, Rosie, that Bible reading is changing you. But she says of her conversion, Ken and Floyd, they talked with me in a way that didn't make me feel erased. And their grace and their truth to me was an important part of my journey to faith. We can do this. No, you may not change the world, but you can change a little corner of it. The power of prayer, the power of grace and truth. Very quickly now, the power of good works. The power of good works. Um, Jesus had a famous statement, Matthew 5, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Two years ago, my wife Martha and I were on vacation. We're staying in a little uh, community, and it's sort of a walker's community. They have sidewalks everywhere, and we never did get lost because wherever we were, they would have maps. And the great thing on these maps is that they would have a little sign here. And the sign would say, you are here. And we always knew where we were. Where are you? We're here. It says so, right here. There's the map. There's the sign. Where are we? You are here. Now, I believe if Jesus were talking to you and me today about doing good and doing good works, and if we were to say, well, where should we go and do those good works? And he would say, well, where are you right now? Well, I'm here. Well, this is where you do good. Now you say, Ronnie, this is kind of goofy. Actually, it's a little more profound than what you might think. Because sometimes we think, you know, there are certain environments where if I'm in a particular environment, it's incumbent upon me to do good there. But there are other environments... You know, when I'm coaching basketball, when I'm playing golf, you pick the environment. You know, there are other environments, though, that when I'm there, I don't really need to be good or do good. Now, do good here, but not there. Here's my challenge and encouragement to you today. Tomorrow, when you go to work, don't take a nasty pill. Don't take a slacker pill. Don't take a gossip pill. Why? 
because it's not secular work. It's sacred work. And let me tell you, your goodness, your good works, Jesus said, they just shine a spotlight on the essence of the gospel. And um, wherever you are, be all there and do good there. And you know what? Never let the good that you cannot do keep you from doing the good you can do. I'm going to walk down here, and I'm actually going to give away some money today. Who would like some money? Anybody want some money? Okay, he's got his hands up right there. My wife's going to raise her hand, but I'm... Who else would like some money? Anybody want some money right here? You want some money? There you go. Anybody else? Anybody want any money right here? Okay, there you go. All right, very, very good. Uh, other hands? They got hand. You know, I'm, 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 I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, that's all the money I'm going to give away today. You say, well, if you don't have enough money for everyone, you shouldn't give any money to anyone, right? Listen. I just have so much time. I don't have unlimited time. I don't have unlimited resources. You say, well, Ronnie, you're a full-time minister. Yeah, I'm a full-time minister, but I don't, I'm not an unlimited-time minister. And since the Garden of Eden, let me break some reality to you. Since the Garden of Eden, every single person has limited time, limited resources. Even Johnny's got limited time and resources. Even Kevin's got limited time and resources. Even you. Even me. But do for the few what you wish you could do for everyone if you had unlimited time and energy and money and resources. You know, sometimes it's easy to get compassion fatigue, need fatigue. There's so many needs, and am I really making a dent? Never let the good that you cannot do interfere with the good you can do. And let me give a, a challenge to everybody here, particularly those of you who may work in a business environment where you're a leader, where you're a manager, where you're an executive, where you function a lot at what, what people call the 30,000-foot level. Michael Hyatt is somebody I like to read. He's a former CEO of Thomas Nelson Publishers. He uh, is, a, is a current leadership uh, coach and, and, and teacher. But for, but for over 20 years, he and his wife have taught second grade in their church. This guy's a nationally recognized leadership management guy. But every week, he and his wife, they teach second grade and work with second grade parents. Why? Because as everybody who attends a church knows, most churches are way overmanaged and underserved. Hello. Way overmanaged and undernourished. And he says... I tell my friends who work in management circles, here's what we need to do. 
granted, there are times you need to take a 30,000-foot look. That, 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 I get that. But for most of us, we need to come down from the 30,000-foot level. You know, Lord, feel free to use me in any way as long as it's in an advisory capacity, okay? Come down from the 30,000-foot level, he says, and land your plane in a very specific, tangible ministry and in acts of service. What I want to say to you, this is a room full of servants. A room full of servants. And it's easy to beat yourself up and think, well, because I don't have the talents of so-and-so, because I don't do this marquee, you're, you're making an incredible difference. And small acts of service when you're the hands and feet of Jesus, small acts of service done with the love of Christ, it's incredibly powerful. Incredibly powerful. So, how do you influence? The power of prayer. The power of grace and truth. The power of good works. And last of all, the power of relational high roads. Relational excellence. Relational excellence is not only incredibly influential, but listen, it creates the kind of environment where God is free to show up and do His work of redeeming and nurturing souls. Reading from Romans 12, a passage Johnny was alluding to during our communion time. Live in harmony with one another. It's not easy. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. You do know that nothing wounds a group, nothing wounds a church like pride. And nothing builds a group, nothing builds a church like humility. And humility shows up in the way you treat others. It shows up in how you treat the least. And what I mean by that, the most non-strategic. And in how you treat those who may disagree with your perspective. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. In other words, I'm asking you, he says, if you're going to aim for relational excellence... Relate to one another counterculturally, rather than choosing the pathway of ever escalating reactivity and hostility. Somebody break it, rather than returning evil for evil. And everybody in churches, let me tell you how this sometimes looks. The evil I do to you, it seldom. A shark bite. It's seldom something really, really big. Sometimes it can be. But it's often a paper cut. But you get enough paper cuts over time, that hurts. And I've known some people who've experienced death by paper cut. And that's why it's important for a church over the long haul to become 
absolute master forgivers and forbearers. If it's possible, he says, verse 18, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And listen, this is the incredible counterintuitive wisdom of Jesus and the Apostle Paul applied here. And it's important that we see this as reality because if we're going to have relational excellence, it's not going to happen in some little wispy, make-believe world. It's going to happen in a real world where we all need to regularly apologize, repent, (laughs) forbear, forgive, And I'm going to illustrate with a dog. In 1996, the movie 101 Dalmatians came out. In 1997, five times the number of Dalmatians were sold because of that movie. But in 1998, there were ten times more Dalmatians available for resale. What happened? People saw the movie and fell in love with Dalmatians. Then what happened? They bought one, and they found out, uh uh-oh, these dogs have issues. Guess what? Look around this room. Everybody in this room is a Dalmatian. Everybody in this room has an issue or two along the way. They're all works in progress and process. And if you think you can find a church where you'll never have to forbear and forgive and persevere in love, You're just wrong. Sometimes we'll look at a website or a brochure and think, oh, look, honey, no Dalmatians there. No. They're there. They're here. And listen, I say this not to excuse the fact that we're all, you know, broken and in process, but to just raise the bar on relational excellence. It's incredibly influential. I want to put a photo up here on the screen from a softball game. In April of 2008, Sarah Tukolsky was playing for Western Oregon. Sarah, her team, they were playing Central Washington. They were actually playing. The winner would advance in the playoffs. Sarah had never hit a home run, but that day she connected There were two people on base, so she hits a three-run homer. She's so excited. As she's rounding first base, she missed first base. The coach calls for her to turn back. When she spins to come back, she falls to the ground, her knee injured. She crawls back to first base, holding on to the bag, asking, what can I do? People from the stands were saying, help her. But if she left the field it would be ruled a single. If her own teammates tried to help her, she would be ruled out. And so what happened was the first baseman on the opposite team asked the ump, said, can I help her around? He said, well, I've got to ask for some help myself here. I've never, been, I've never seen, heard of a situation like this. Finally, they said, sure, you can help her. And so the first baseman, by the name of Mallory, called for the shortstop to come over. And together, they started helping Sarah around the bases. They said, which leg is hurt? My right one. She said, when we get to second base, we're going to lower you. Lower you. 
you touch it with your left leg. They go second. They go third. They go all the way home. They get there. And, of course, you know, people are going crazy. By the way, somebody said, now, this would never happen in a baseball game. But afterwards, somebody said, maybe it should and maybe it would now. But they became an Internet sensation. Internet, they won an ESPN ESPY award for that year. They were invited to a number of talk shows. Garth Brooks brought them up on stage at one of his concerts. They were featured at that year's Major League Baseball All-Star Game. They sat in the commissioner's booth. In other words, what they did, first of all, what they did was impressive, but it's impact. People saw that and said, here's somebody who sees something, a bigger picture in the moment. Well, this happened in 2008. Sarah was recently interviewed. And the journalist asked her this question. Did that experience in your life change you at all? And she said, the home run didn't change me as a person, but it's had a huge impact on how I see a moment. And what I learned from that experience is that we always have the opportunity in every moment to see a bigger picture. And if we can pause in those moments and make choices based on integrity and kindness, and I would add, and the love of Jesus Christ, I think we'd see a lot more good in the world. Everybody, you are a person of great influence. You have power in prayer, grace, and truth. The power of good works and the power of relational excellence. Sometimes because you don't see your influence, you think it's not there, but it is. And listen, your influence is pointing pointing people to Jesus, and people are hungry and thirsty for God, even if they don't realize it yet. They may think, no, what I'm really hungry and thirsty for is more money or more success or more fame or more romance. But at the bottom of their soul, we cannot escape the fact that we're all created in the image of God and we are hardwired by our Creator for a relationship with Him. Everybody, God loves you. And He can make a difference in your life. He forgives our sins. He comes to live within us through His Holy Spirit. He gives us strength for the present and hope for the future. That's the gospel. God bless you as you let your light shine and as you be a creative community. This church is in this building and this church leaves this building as well. You are sent. This morning...